This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen another era in stadiums go up here in the United States and also around the world. And while the amount of money being spent on these facilities is now well into the billions of dollars, they do provide an economic benefit to the communities that in which they are built. The stadiums are also in many places seen as hallowed grounds, almost like a place of worship and then hence bringing forth a community benefit as well. Journalist Rafi Cohen spent a year going to a variety of these stadiums to see what makes them tick. He put those experiences into his new book titled The Arena, Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubiously Funded and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sport. And he joins us on the show right now. Rafi, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you spent a year going to a variety of stadiums. How do you best describe spending a year at stadiums? Oh, well, uh, fun but exhausting. <laughs> you know, going to a game is always, you know, it's always great to go out to a, to a ballpark. Um, but, yeah, you know, it can take a toll as well. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone was always, you know, all my friends would say, man, I'm so jealous of you. And I would yeah. just say, man. I'm so jealous that you get to not go to a game today. Uh, but, you know, I I would never complain. I mean, it was truly the experience of a lifetime uh, yeah. to get to hit the road for a year and really explore, you know, stadiums and kind of these the underworlds of stadiums in a way that I'd always been curious about but never really had the opportunity to really, to really learn as much as I wanted to. So what are the things that, that you really came away from? What are the kind of the seminal points uh, that, that really maybe you didn't think of when you went into, into this project? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, there's a few um, because I really, I, I tried to cover a broad, uh, a broad spectrum of topics within the book. Um, but, you know, for me, one thing was, you know, I go into this project thinking, wow, I'm going to get to see a lot of sports. You know, I'm going to get to see a lot of baseball, a lot of football, a lot of basketball being played. And one of the things that was sort of surprising to me was how, to what extent each of these sort of underworlds were so fully realized in and of themselves, whether it was ticket scalping or groundskeeping or fan entertainment and, or food services and, and, and operations, that really there's so much to each of these elements that the games kind of fade away. You almost forget that they're yeah. happening. They're just backdrops. Uh, so, you know, I really spent more time, you know, looking away from the field of play than I actually did looking at the field of play. Um, and then one of my other big takeaways, and which is, a, um, you know, a slight, a slight tweak on the, economic, uh, on the economic argument, is that really having spent as much time as I did looking into the literature and talking to sports and stadium economics, ec- economists, that really the consensus is that all the evidence suggests is that there's not um, an economic benefit to building a stadium, that they're not good economic drivers. Right. While, of course, they can create targeted uh, economic activity within specific areas, but as a, as a whole, macroscopically, when you pull out sort of region-wide, that they're, they're not a benefit, and that's really not an argument we should be buying. Well, and, and what's interesting about it is uh, that when you look at, uh, I think, the last 30 years or so uh, of this trend of building stadiums, seemingly one of the main reasons why they get built is partly because the, the team or the owner of the team, to a degree, holds the city hostage. They basically say, you know what? 
but you're going to lose us. You're going to lose this great piece of history that you've had in your in your region for so many years. And then the city or the state or whatever it might be ends up caving in the end. Hundred percent. I mean, it's not, and it's not even just you're losing sort of this, uh, you know, this civic monument or you know this, this piece of history, but it's really. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, you know, exaggerate, but it's almost like a kind of emotional manipulation. Because, I mean, think about our attachment to these places, yeah. our attachment to these teams. It goes so much deeper than just, um, you know, than just the fact that we're building a new stadium and tearing down another one. Uh, though, of course, that, you know, that goes that goes pretty deep as well. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely, I mean, as long as these leagues sort of hold monopoly power, because there's a finite amount of supply and seemingly infinite demand between both large and mid-sized cities around the country, you know, clamoring for, for teams uh, and, and often and hopefully less often uh, being willing to fork over just um, inordinate sums of taxpayer money without necessarily understanding the full uh, consequences of their actions uh, to draw a team. You know, that's that's how it really started was in, you know, in 1953, Milwaukee you know, it built a stadium and they draw the, the Braves from Boston. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's really what the, like the, the first thing that kicked off this relocation trend, uh, that's been, you know, that's been, uh, in America for the last 60 plus years. Well, it, it is interesting. And going off of something you said a minute ago is that we've reached the point where the game itself is part of the attraction. It used to be the only attraction. I mean, if you go back to some of the stadiums, like you mentioned, when 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 Milwaukee built County Stadium and they got the Braves to come there, great. They had a baseball team. It was fantastic. Uh, they put concession stands in. They had to put bathrooms in, but that was it. Now yeah. it's a full-service entertainment thing where stadiums have to have all kinds of different entertainment pieces, whether it be for adults or in a lot of cases for kids because kids will not sit for three hours and watch a baseball game or watch a football game. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the major trends right now is this idea of kind of segmented experiences or neighborhoods within the stadium. You know, we're still going for this communal experience, right? I mean, it's one of the last places where we go to be with other people and experience a live event. But at the same time, it's much more splintered than it ever was in for exactly the reasons you're saying. I mean, you go to a ballpark and you have the kids zone out in the outfield and you have the luxury club, you know, behind the home plate and then some other suites in another area and the tequila bar over here and the standing room uh, only bar for the young professionals on that side. And it's all about trying to hit these very targeted markets. Uh, and then on for football, the idea is providing all this extra, you know, ornamentation and pizzazz because mm -hmm. it's hard to convince people to go to a football game when it's you got to fight through traffic and there's, you know, there's a, you know, the ticket prices can be prohibitive and really it's a for football especially it's a product that's designed for TV so it's hard to get people to come out mm -hmm. so there people are working hard to try and figure out how to how to keep those uh, turnstiles turning. But what is interesting, and this goes a little bit to, to my background professionally, is I, I think as much as anything, one of the reasons why we have seen a lot of those things added, especially in the last decade, is because these are the things that were done in minor league sports, specifically minor league baseball. When you think about the tiki bars and and all the different fun <laughs> things, these are all things that were done by minor leagues, and the major league teams saw them and how people liked it, and were like, okay, we got to have that. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's there's something that uh, a quote that I heard pretty often, which was, oh, something is minor league-ish. Oh, that's too minor league. Yeah. You know, for a chapter that I wrote in the arena about um, about fan entertainment, I spent time uh, homestand with the Kansas City Royals. And they have um, a guy named Don Constante who came from the, the Spurs, the, you know, San Antonio Spurs of the right, NBA. Right. And obviously, you know, the, the game presentation, and this was a decade ago when he came over, was at such a different level for the NBA and inside of arenas than it was at ballparks. And the Royals, a decade ago, you know, they, they hadn't been to a World Series. They weren't playoff contenders. Uh, forget about even the wild card chase. So th- for them, they wanted to amp up the fun. They wanted to, you know, recreate that NBA atmosphere inside the ballpark. Mm-hmm. So he was tasked with doing that and sort of giving carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. But you know, 2014 rolls around, and the team goes on this unexpected run into the playoffs, into the World Series. And then 2015, the year I spent with them, that they actually make it to the World Series and win. That suddenly yeah. there's these murmurings from the front office that say, you know what, why do we have to have all these crazy promotions and gags and games, you know, within the game? Why can't we just focus on baseball? Why can't it just be about winning? And yeah. that's, you know, that's really the conflict that always happens is winning versus fun. And that's something that they don't have in the minor leagues. You know, teams like the St. Paul Saints, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but oh, they're yeah. sort of a, oh, <laughs> they're oh, yeah. a pioneer when it comes to the crazy gags and giveaways. Um, oh, the Vec family, they are very well known, and they and they own a team in Charleston, South Carolina, or did own a team in Charleston, South Carolina as well. That's right, absolutely. Mike Vec, uh, son of Bill, uh, the great Bill Vec, the P.T. Barnum of baseball. And... Uh, and you know, I spoke to their president, Tom Whaley, and he—it's something that he really—he doesn't—he doesn't love this distinction because you know he worked for a time when Mike Vec went to the Tampa Bay Rays and Devil Rays, you know, and was sort of met again with that attitude of that's a little bit minor leagueish. We don't—we don't do that around here. That yeah. um, he says, he, you know, for billionaire owners who are you know presumably so smart in so many other aspects of life, they're so dumb when it comes to this idea of promotions at the ballpark. Because it doesn't have to be a distinction between winning and fun, you know. And as you said, so many of these uh, promotions and ideas, like running the bases and heritage theme nights and just sort of, you know, in-between inning gags, they absolutely all started in the minor league. And it's because there was a desperate owner trying to draw a couple more hundred fans. And so there's a trickle-up effect. But it's always kind of changing that definition of what's major league, what's minor league. And it's very fluid. Very interesting. You, we are talking with Rafi Cohen, who is the author of the book The Arena, a look at uh, inside look at, at stadiums and their impact on communities. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, you, you went out and you talked to ticket scalpers. And, and, oh, yeah. I, and I wanted to get your reaction to their piece to this whole equation because, I mean, you I don't, you can't go to any major league stadium, baseball, football, NBA, whatever it is, and not see scalpers outside trying to hawk tickets before a game. Yeah, well, that was that's certainly always been true, and it'll be inter- interesting to see if that remains true. Uh, to me, you know, scalpers were always just this very intriguing element of the game day experience, you know, kind of, they, they exist on the margins. It's this external ecosystem, this street level entrepreneurship 
that happens on the day of the game. It's almost like the stock market, you know, just buying and selling, what they call grinding, you know, buy a ticket, sell a ticket, buy a ticket, sell a ticket, just constantly, constant, constant motion. But it was always, it always seemed a little illicit to me. It was something, I don't know if it was scary, but it was just, it had an edge to it. Uh, so it, that was one area in particular that I knew I wanted to learn more about because, you know, it, it would just always seem so interesting. When I would, who were these guys? How did they get into it? How did they do it? Um, so I, I, I spent time both around Fenway Park in Boston and then up in the Gateway District in Cleveland, which is uh, where uh, both uh, the Cleveland Indians play in Progressive Field and the Cavaliers play yeah. at Quicken Loans Arena. Uh, and so I, I, I went up there for a couple weeks and I, you know, basically pestered my way into their inner circle. Uh, you know, the first few uh, guys I approached with a, a notebook and a couple questions, uh, but, you know, perhaps smartly just turned their back on me and walked away. Yeah. Uh, but eventually I, eventually I was welcomed in and I really got, got an inside look at sort of who these guys were, how they get into it. And there's, there's a, a wide range of reasons. You know, there's, there's a reason that this is a margin economy. You know, some of these guys might have records. They might have habits of some kind. Uh, perhaps they just fell into this lifestyle 25, 30 years ago when ticket scalping was in much more of a, you know, of a, of a halcyon days when it was easier to buy and sell tickets before things like StubHub and digital ticket markets right. came, on, came online. Uh, and they've been doing it for the last 20, 25, 30 years, as I said. And suddenly you don't have a resume. You don't have references. And you can't do anything else. This is this is who you are. This is what you do. Um, and it was really fascinating because there's not only, as I said, this sort of level of entrepreneurship to it, um, but there's there's levels. Like it's not just oh we show up at game the game today and we're going to buy a ticket and try and sell it. Right. It's also well tomorrow when there's not a game maybe we're going to go on a road trip and we're going to drive to Vegas and stake out a, a boxing match or we're going to travel around the country following Taylor Swift on her tour or go to the southeast for college bowl season. So there was there was so much more to it than I ever expected. Uh, you also spent a good bit of time at the Cowboys Stadium uh, in Arlington, Texas, and, and that is, I think, by a lot of people, either seen as the most gaudy stadium in in the history of sports or the most spectacular, depending on whether you're a Cowboys <laughs> fan or not. Uh, what, what's what's your reaction to that facility and how they run their operations on, on a day to day basis? Yeah, well, can I can I check the box? That's all of the above. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, it really is just a an over the top gaudy stadium in that truly Texas sense of you know, bigger is better. Yeah, uh, and even just sort of like you know the Dallas you know, you know wealthy class sensibility of you know you you show your wealth. That's not it's not considered tacky perhaps in the same way that it might be in other communities. Uh, but it is also truly a spectacle. And that stadium is an icon, and it has earned it already in its brief time in existence uh, because that, that team and that family put real thought into what they were building in a way that maybe, you know, other stadiums don't necessarily come online and become instant icons because it's a little bit more slapdash. Mm-hmm. This, was a, you know, this was an organization that you know, considered everything down to the marble tile and the elevator buttons and where they were sourcing the materials for these little details. Everything, in the words of Jerry Jones, had to scream Cowboys. Everything had to be a reflection of the Cowboys brand and everything that it represents. And 
Yes. Sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say that. So this is reflected in game day, not just in terms of sort of being there for the spectacle, which truly was maybe the, the most fun I had at any stadium was it may have been at AT&T stadium. And I mean, there were some close seconds, Lambeau field, a close second and some other ones were close seconds, right. but it's, I think it's largely because everyone goes there to have fun because they go there because they know it's a spectacle right. because they know it's meant to be an over the top experience, you know, where every tailgate had its own amateur DJ and there was a post game concert thrown by the Cowboys. Forget the fact that they lost the game. <laughs> Nobody yeah. was thinking about that anymore. Um, and it's just there was just so much effort into you know put into everyone having a good time and, be, and it being a memorable experience. And because of that, it seemingly makes it in the minds of the consumer of the fan that's going to the game a little bit more palatable to be paying some of the prices that they're paying at some of these games right now. Absolutely, and and that's I think that's something that maybe other stadiums will struggle with because it's tough to duplicate. I mean, who can duplicate uh, what Jerry Jones has done down there? He's a unique salesman in a lot of ways he's you know a create creatively pretty genius in terms of the way he markets the team the way even in terms of the fact that they've kept their uh you know their merchandising rights they're the only the only nfl team to do so and they're cashing in on it big time that jerry jones has figured out how to draw people to the stadium not just on the day of the game but on non-game days that people by the thousands come to pay 25 dollars to take a tour of the stadium and then you walk around, you see the suites, you see the locker room, and then they deposit you on the field, on the playing field. And you get to spend as much time there as you want. You can lie down on the midfield star. You can throw a football with your dad or your daughter or whoever you're with. Uh, some people, uh, a Cowboy staffer told me, even bring along undercover officiants, and they get married on the playing field after tours. It's sort of like an undercover ceremony. Right. Uh, and and what, what that is so great at, what that does is it seeks to accomplish is it basically creates this emotional connection. Yeah, you're paying $25 and everything is sponsored. You know, the, the toilet paper is brought to you by some, you know, some company, I'm sure. Uh, but it, it's commoditizing this emotional connection. But the emotional connection is real. You know, it, it's um, I think I put it in the book this way that it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a page ripped out of the Disney playbook. Because they're commoditizing this emotional connection, and Jerry Jones does it in a way that I don't know that other other teams or organizations will be able to successfully duplicate. That, that's interesting that you bring up the Disney element of it because in, in my past life working in minor league baseball, uh, I went through we, at, at one of the teams I worked with. We went through a day of Disney training, and and it truly was the philosophy of the upsell of. The old line is, you know, would you like fries with that? <laughs> and truly, that is what a lot of teams are understanding that they need to do. They need to provide something other than just showing up at a game and, and watching a watching a football game for three hours. Right. And so the question is, is that, you know, having some sort of like celebrity chef restaurant or outpost? Is it having some kind of Frankenstein's monster style concoction of deep fried nachos that you have to try? Uh, and then regret later. Well, uh, let me ask it, you, let me ask you about that. I mean, did you look into how the food at a lot of these stadiums has evolved as well? Yeah, absolutely. I looked. Uh, well, I specifically spent my time going behind the scenes on the operations at City Field, which is 
um, you know, one of the top food programs in the country and is widely credited with having popularized some of these modern movements within concessions, largely be, uh, due, uh, due to a unique arrangement that they have with Aramark, their concessions company, um, where they retain control uh, and they have financial skin in the game. And Aramark actually runs the day to day. Right. So it's, it's much different than just sort of skimming a percentage off the top, which is how this usually works. But I did also look at the history going back to um, the early days of concessions when there might be, you know, uh, this was a quote out of a book by uh, Professor Alan Gutman, and, which is outside of a regatta in Poughkeepsie, New York, around the turn of the 20th century, there was a, a fat man stirring pink lemonade in a bathtub. And that was basically, <laughs> you know, that was the concession. You know, and how it evolved from that to hot dogs around, the, around that time, around the turn of the century, um, to then being, you know, having um, folding tables and bags of peanuts and then more fitted planks within the within sort of alcoves and becoming concession stands and how it sort of slowly evolved over time. Right. You know, at the very beginning, uh, the um, there was three brothers out of Buffalo, New York, who started uh, a, a service, uh, what eventually became known as Sports Service. And they basically had to, you know, beg the uh, M- Major League teams to let them in because Major League teams didn't see any sort of revenue opportunity with food. They right. had no idea. So they said, all right, you're going to do it, and you'll give us a percentage fine. And uh, company lore is that at the end of the first season working with the the Detroit Tigers, they made so much money, they felt bad about it, and they gave some back to the Tigers. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, finally, uh, is I wanted to get into just the end of the, the feeling that people have for a lot of these stadiums. And, and you mentioned how they love their teams, but uh, you were at Lambeau Field, which is seen as, as a shrine. And, and obviously there's places like Wrigley Field and Fenway Park and maybe more of these you know, in the baseball realm. Uh, than there are anything. I mean, heck, here in Philadelphia, you know, we have a new baseball stadium, new football stadium, but back in the day we had the old vet here, and, you know, even <laughs> though it was it was still kind of a dump, it was our dump. And, you know, yeah. and, a, and a lot of people have that have that mindset where they're talking about uh, uh, their stadiums. Yeah, absolutely, and I think, I mean, I think there is something to the idea of, you know, physical spaces in general taking on meaning, you know, especially in um, – Wrigley Field and Fenway Park, you know, the only two remaining turn-of-the-century ballparks, there's so much history just trapped in the building. You know, it just wraps itself in, in the physical structure, you know, the, the cracks in the concrete. You can't get it out. And that's uh, something that I spoke about with um, people, uh, you know, executives at both those teams and also uh, for Lambeau at the Packers is this idea of the soul of the ballpark. What is right. the soul of the ballpark? Because both of these, those places and Lambeau have gone through or are currently going through renovations, and they're sometimes struggling to figure out what is that balance between modernity and history. How do you update it in terms of the necessary creature comfort to get people to still come out to the game, right. but still feel like it's the same magical place that they went to with their grandparents? Or their grandparents went with their parents. You know, how? what is it about these places? Is it just the memory? Is it walking into the physical space? Is it the quirks? I mean, I think every place has a different answer. But the bottom line is is, it, is that it's, it's us. It's what we bring to it as well. It's our memories. And when you knock down a place, even if it's a dump like Veterans Stadium, like yeah. you said, it's our dump. And, and when you go somewhere new, 
you start you start new. You start fresh. You can't bring those same <laughs> memories with you. They're just gone. Yeah, there are a lot of people, a lot of people that that will remember an old stadium. They're like, I hate the new one. It's too clean. They need to dirty it up a little bit. <laughs> Rafi, thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you again, and all the best with the book. Thanks so much. Thank you. The book is The Arena Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubiously Funded, and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sport. It is out now, available in bookstores and online. Many thanks to Rafi for joining us. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.